You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. It surprises you sometimes to see how much physical uh, strength it demands, so I think it does attract a person who tends to be athletic um, and and like to to push their bodies in, in different ways. The training in classical music is so intense that as a as you're learning you spend a lot of time in a room by yourself um, and um, chamber music allows you to get out of that and share some of what you've done. This is Dr. Lisa Belial and you are listening to Love Main Radio, show number 251. Practicing Perfection, Music and Dance, airing for the first time on Sunday, July 10, 2016. Artists know that their craft can be both an aesthetic and a kinesthetic experience. Our brains and bodies change as a result of time spent practicing and performing. This is especially true for children. Today, we explore these ideas with Elizabeth Drucker, owner and director of the Ballet School in Topsom, and with Dr. Anastasia Antonakos, award-winning recitalist and professor of music at the University of Southern Maine. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. My next guest is an individual that was introduced to the main magazine group by one of our photographers, Aaron Little, who we love, who is a um, who really gives us beautiful photos for Maine Magazine and Oldport Magazine and has done some wellness shoots with me. But our guest today is Elizabeth Drucker. She is the owner and director of the Ballet School in Topsom, Maine. She received her training from Nancy Bielski at the School of American Ballet in New York City and went on to dance professionally with the New York City Ballet. She has been teaching ballet in Maine and New York for 23 years and works with all ages and abilities. When not in the studio, Elizabeth enjoys being outside raising chickens, running with her dogs, riding her bike, or gardening. She lives in Topsom with her husband, Derek Treadwell. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And Erin could not have um, spoken more highly, Erin Little, our photographer. And I believe that you said that her daughter, also named Elizabeth, does some training with you at your school. She does. From what I hear, you are doing very interesting things in Topsom. You know, it's a small, we have our studio set in a converted barn in the back of our property, and I think it's a surprise sometimes to drive down this sort of rural road and uh, find that there are um, many, many students who are training there every day and training very seriously back in our little hole in the woods back there. How did you first become interested in ballet yourself? Uh, I started when I was nine. I think, like many uh, many young young kids, uh, I just I started with tap dancing, and uh, within 
within about three weeks, I think I was doing uh, tap, jazz, and ballet, and then within a year, I'd really just focused in on ballet, uh, fell in love with it. I think I was taking lessons every day at that point. Uh, it was a, I, my studio was right around the corner, so it was easy to take that often, but um, I really quickly fell um, fell in love with, with the work in the studio. Uh, I kept dancing. I, that was, I, I moved to Maine after that, um, but then uh, went back to New York City to start training uh, with the School of American Ballet um, when I was about 12 years old and uh, full-time when I was 15. Uh, went on to dance with New York City Ballet for when I was 17. Um, and then it didn't take me long to realize that I really loved the work in the studio more than I loved the work on the stage. Uh, so that's what made me shift from uh, that professional performance career uh, to, to a teaching career. Uh, came back to Maine um, in 1993, started teaching then, and uh, never stopped, but I would say the first few years when I came back to Maine, I was, I was still sort of finding my way. It was a big adjustment, uh, stopping uh, training at such a high level uh, to, to switch to teaching, but when I started with my own school, with the ballet school, uh, it was like I'd really found found home for myself and finished teaching the first day and just couldn't wait to get back in the studio the next day and do it again, and, and I still have that feeling. But why ballet? You know, you're nine and 10 years mm, old, and yeah. there's something about that particular form of dance. It's so specific. It is very specific, and I think it attracts a specific type of person. Um, I think it's it demands a lot of physical. It surprises you sometimes to see how much physical uh, strength it demands. So I think it does attract a person who tends to be athletic um, and and like to to push their bodies in in different ways. Uh, but I think it also really attracts a person who likes details and and is excited by little progressions. Uh, the students who, for instance, Erin's daughter, Elizabeth, um, she's now at that age where she, she comes a couple of times a week and her class this year just, just really just came together in terms of loving those little details. So we can spend, um, you know, all this time in class focusing on uh, the, the, the uh, intense um, classicism of ballet. And, and that's not for everybody, uh, but when you get a group that, that loves that, um, you, there's just no stopping them, I feel. So uh, I think there's also a tremendous love of music um, if, you're, if you love ballet, uh, because it's such, such a pivotal part. Um, and but I'm surprised also how uh, how many students really do find something to love in it, um, because you're right, it is a, it is a very specific kind of training. It seems as though m many parents are interested in having their children um, do ballet, but that at some point it has to really be about the child, him or herself. Yes. What is that? What is that pivot point? What do you see in kids who make the decision to move forward themselves? That's a good question. I think uh, I think that they start to feel um, 
how much success they have in the studio. And by success, I mean that for them, uh, finding achievement in um, in those small changes, because it's a small progression. It's not like you walk in one day and then the next day you're doing, um, you know, triple pirouettes and you've got your split. And it's such a small, slow progression. Uh, but they start to the the aha moment that I think I see in my students is um, when they've been working at something for a period of time, and it might be something small, like you know, holding their arm at a certain level, and then they just they they get it. They get it that day. It and you see their this light go on behind their eyes, this smile, even the shy students who, uh, you know, their their smile is sort of uh, repressed a little bit, but they can't they can't. Um, keep it contained uh, because they've they've worked at something and they've seen the achievement in it um, and it that's so rewarding and so that's that's what I try to find uh, for my students and um, that's why I think the ballet is something that everybody can be successful in um, if you look at the standards of success being uh, broad being about um, about little details as well as big details you described a, a point in your own career where you went from performance mm-hmm. to studio mm-hmm. and to teaching. Yeah. Explain to me the differences between someone who might go in one direction versus another direction. I think you have to... One thing that I saw in my fellow performers that I didn't see in myself is that we'd be backstage getting ready for a performance and they were brimming with excitement. They were like, oh, I can't wait to get, I can't wait to get on stage tonight. Um, yeah, I have to go to class tomorrow, the next day, and the rehearsals, but it's just to get on stage. That that was the reward for them, and that was really enjoyable for them. Um, for me, that was a little bit more of the, uh, that was the hardest part in the day for me. Um, whereas that time in the studio where there's so much, discovery, uh, so many opportunities to try something new in the studio and see how it worked. Um, And I think that you can get that way on stage for sure. Uh, I think that there were factors that um, stood in my way a little bit and some of it was um, being healthy, being uh, physically and mentally healthy to have the confidence to to take those sort of risks on stage uh, that I felt I I could in the classroom. I think the dancers that are so successful performing really find a balance in their life that they can uh, handle the stress of performing, uh, but that they, but that the love of being on stage uh, really uh, pushes them through, helps them, um, and so I see that in in both um, in in my students. I have some students who. They get through their classwork during the year so that they can be rewarded at the end of the year with a with a spring production. Uh, and then there's others who I think would be happy being in class every day and and not ever having to step on stage. Uh, and and you know, I think that's one of the things that uh, in a smaller school like mine, we're trying to find um, trying to find that balance for for all students because it it is different um, for each of them. It, it seems to me as a 
apparent that we've evolved into a very performance-centric world. Yes. And that it's not even just the spring performance of, say, a ballet. It's also the sort of daily on stage of Instagram or social yes. media. And so there's always the sense that you have to have your game face on. You're absolutely right. So how do you step back from that and encourage this joy that you're describing mm-hmm. in just your own small accomplishments? Mm-hmm. I think I'm very lucky in that the the older students in the school uh, sort of the, it trickles down their their beliefs and their philosophy and their work ethics trickle down to their uh, to the younger students, um, and I think the older students really understand that that everything really happens in the classroom. Um, and it also happens outside the classroom, the work they do at home, the 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 time that they put into uh, thinking about about class. But um, so when you see that modeled for you every day, I think that, and then you, and then for the parents to also see that these older dancers are doing really well, they they can see the product on stage every year, but they also see that these older dancers are um, gaining recognition elsewhere. They audition for summer programs throughout the country and and are accepted. So they see that that. Uh, that the course of ballet in particular, uh, more so in ballet than some other forms of dance, um, really is a classroom-based uh, based activity. Um, and so I think that helps. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but uh, I, I think it's, it's sort of building that culture within the school um, that... that w- that the value uh, happens every single day, uh, and then we also get to see that and celebrate that in a performance, that the performance is sort of a celebration rather than uh, a given that that's just going to happen. Um, and, and, and it seems to flow really nicely that way. I think we have a great um, parent base and, and student base that, that appreciates that. So. Uh, I don't have too much, uh, too many questions about that. Part of my um, work over the years as a physician has been in teaching medical students, teaching residents. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, I taught swimming lessons, mm-hmm. and, I, and I was a camp counselor. And and I think there's something very different um, in the teaching. I think there's very intricate and specific skills involved in teaching that are very that are different than the doing of it because especially in your field you're trying to uh, help kids incorporate a new muscle memory and you're trying to talk to them and show them something that they need to pull into their own bodies and create new neural pathways how have you gone about doing that well, that's something that I think uh, sometimes keeps me up at night thinking of how the best ways to do that, uh, because it's so different for every student. And you, you know, for some students, and I think this is what you're describing. I, I for some students, it's really very, very hard to even find those muscles. Um, so there, uh, you know, ballet is such a traditional. Uh, art form there's 
sort of set combinations that we do every day uh, and variations within those uh, those exercises that are the building blocks for uh, for progression so relying on those those building blocks uh, really does set up each student to uh, to make those those leaps but um, I think that that some students love ballet, uh, but it's hard for them physically. Um, and I think that just takes time. Uh, there are students that I have now that four years ago, if you said they'd be doing what they're doing now, I would have, I would have said, hmm, that's, well, we'll see. And then they surprise me constantly. So uh, it's, it's sort of just being patient and, and sticking with it and, and, you know, I love to work individually. Unfortunately, we don't have that much time to work uh, with each student individually. We're working in group classes, so finding ways that everybody can uh, profit from a combination, like the ones that are really working on just pulling up their quad muscle, uh, and the ones that are working on uh, more refined details like um, arms and music and timing. If you can find combinations that address all of that all at once, uh, you're going to get uh, you're going to get gains from all your students. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because I think um, you know when I have taught myself over the years, what I notice is there's so many different ways to approach learning something. You know, you might have somebody who's more visual, somebody who's more auditory, and if you're in the medical field, somebody who's more kinesthetic, and sometimes that means they actually have to go out and do stuff, which maybe isn't the best yeah. thing if yeah. they're they don't if they're brand new. Yeah, but it is it just is what it is. Yeah, you have all these different learning styles, and somehow you're sometimes you're not entirely sure which I guess path to take in. No, you're totally right. And and one thing that I think we spend a lot of class time doing is teaching students how to figure out how they learn. So uh, we'll teach a combination and then I'll s and then I'll say, okay, give it a try and and then I'll ask them how, how did it go that first time? Did did anybody get it right that first time? And uh, and very rarely does someone say, oh, yes, I got it perfectly right that first time. And, and so we talk about that you have to find the skills to figure out how to do these combinations. So for some people, it's, uh, it's stopping and thinking and, and sort of drawing a mental picture out. But for many people, it's actually just doing that one sort of transition from one step to another eight times in a row. And if, if they get that eight times in a row, then, and then it sort of gets ingrained in them. But I think that, and that's one of the parts I love about it, is helping students figure out how do they learn? How do they learn in this environment? And then remembering to do that when I'm not reminding them to do that. Um, and again, that's sort of building that culture and, uh, and, and trickling down, watching older students do that, younger students do that. And, uh, but I love that aspect of it. But it's challenging. Well, it is. And, and I think sometimes as a, as a teacher, actually even as a doctor, I think about, because that part of that is also teaching. Yeah. Um, there is the sense that you want people to succeed. Yes. And so sometimes it doesn't happen or it doesn't happen quickly. Right. And so there is that like state of tension and that state of like, am I, is there something I could be doing differently? But sometimes it's not about what you're offering as a teacher. It's more about what their receptivity is or where when things start to line up. Exactly. So I'm interested in also the, the notion of body awareness because yeah. I think 
again, another thing that has happened in our culture, my observation is that people are increasingly, well, it's sort of an, a dichotomy. Some people are so much more aware of their bodies that, that the physicality becomes their entire self. Yeah. And then other people are so disconnected from their bodies that they have no sense of awareness. Right. And, and as a doctor, I see both, and I think there are, can be significant issues with both extremes. How does that impact your field? Well, I think it's. I think you're right that especially uh, in these in this generation, when there's so much, uh, so many uh, superficial ways of looking at our body, pictures, selfies, uh, uh, um, especially with our young, our preteens and our teens, uh, that that finding a way to appreciate what their bodies how their bodies perform looking at their bodies not just by uh, their appearance but uh, thinking of their bodies as enabling them to reach goals um, is really helpful um, that 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 we are we break things down a little bit in the studio you know you're you're getting uh, all the dancers come in these uh, students come in and they're all wearing leotards and tights and so you're getting rid of um, sort of the how do I look today in terms of how my clothes what am I what am I wearing what and uh, we're all sort of sitting in this sort of vulnerable position in in class um, and and getting comfortable with that getting uh getting uh especially young women um comfortable with uh how who their bodies um who they are in their bodies um and then and then learning to take care of their bodies uh learning to appreciate how they what their prepare preparations how that makes them feel um you know we talk a lot about uh long-term um, long-term gains if, if a student has a uh, audition on Saturday and they come in on Monday with a with a cold uh, maybe it's more valuable to go home and uh, get their homework done and go to bed early and um, so that they're feeling better at the end of the week um, so that that sense of responsibility towards their bodies um, what's going to what's going to help in the long term um, you know fueling and hydration and all those things um, contribute to their performance uh, physically but also mentally their confidence level um, and uh, so to me that and I think for my students that they would say the same thing that it um, gets them away from that uh, that culture of always having to be um, to look a certain way because uh, it's much more about feeling a certain way and uh, and having uh, physical goals for themselves that they're trying to to meet um, and I think it you you think of ballet sometimes as uh, you know really obsessed uh, people obsessed with their bodies and and I don't think they are I think they are uh, passionate about um, finding new skills in their bodies, finding their potential in their bodies, and um, and that actually can be a really healthy uh, outlet. 
Well, I, I really am enjoying this conversation, I, and I know Thank we could you. have lots of other things, directions we can go in. For people who um, would like to learn more about the work that you are doing in Topsom at the ballet school, where you are the owner and director, where would you send them? Probably to our website, which is just theballetschool.com. We have classes all year round, we, and uh, classes for all ages. So we have uh, a wonderful adult group that uh, probably 20, 25 adult students who come in regularly and um, children who start at about five years old uh, start taking classes and, uh, and we go throughout the year. Well, I encourage people to learn more about the work that you're doing at the ballet school in Topsom. We've been speaking with Elizabeth Drucker, who um, I think I'm really enjoying the, the point of view you have on ballet and um, kids and their bodies. So I appreciate your coming in today, and I appreciate your working as um, a teacher. Thank and you having so found much. that calling for yourself. Thank you. I appreciate you having me here. It's been great to talk to you. Experienced chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists, and we also host a series of monthly solo shows in our newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Eric Hopkins, Matthew Russ, Jane Damon, William Crosby, and Ruth Hamill, to name a few. Please visit our website for complete show details at artcollectormain.com. My next guest is an individual who is not only bringing joy to the world through her own music, but also is a teacher and bringing joy to the world through the music of others. This is Anastasia, Dr. Anastasia Antonakos, who is a pianist on the faculty of the University of Southern Maine and a frequent recitalist, chamber player, and concerto soloist. Anastasia, also called Annie, has played in Greece, Russia, France, and Belgium, as well as various places in the United States, including Washington, D.C., where she testified for funding for the National Endowment of the Arts. Annie lives with her husband and daughter in Portland, where she was named one of the 100 most influential people of Portland by a local publication, and she is in the process of launching the nonprofit 240 Strings. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. So you have so many names. I, you can, I can call you Dr. Antonakos. I can call you Anastasia. I call you Annie. I mean, it's good that you have so many different identities. You can call me any of those. I've, people have used all of them. Um, most of my friends know me as Annie. Um, I think on the stage often uh, the program will be published with Anastasia, but um, one of the things that I'm trying to do with this nonprofit is get a little bit away from the elitism that's been associated with classical music, so I'm finding that we use Annie a lot more often. Well, it is a very regal name, Anastasia. It's a very, and, you. and your last name is actually, it's just very, um, I don't know, Melodic is that a word? Thank you. <laughs> so it's, uh, it was my grandmother's name. Um, there's a tradition in in Greece. I'm half Greek, 
So um, you name your kids after your parents. So first children after the father's parents, next children after the mother's parents. Then you're free to name them anything you want, but I'm an only child, so it worked out great. That's good. So how about your Greek heritage? How has that influenced the work that you do now? Um, that's a great question. I don't know that I've ever thought about it as it applies to my profession specifically. I mean, I feel a lot of support for sure from my, you know, all the things you see in my big fat Greek wedding are true. <laughs> um, I have a big extended family and um, the Greek community functions as an even bigger representation of that. Um, and so for sure, when I play, the audience is full of Greek Americans, um, which is great. Um, I love Greek food. I love Greek dancing. I love Greek music. Um, I have played some settings of some Greek folk songs um, in concerts before. Um, and I did do some concerts in Greece in 2004, which was a great experience. Um, it ended up to be aligned with the Euro Cup, which, and that was the year that Greece won. And it seemed like every town that I played a concert in, um, that concert lined up with one, either the quarterfinals or the semifinals or the finals. Um, so there was a lot of spirit in the air. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because they're two very different cultural uh, entities, I would think, the music and the sports. Yeah, um, but I think it's a small enough country so that people are, you know, people are interested in everything. Um, I mean, they had a lot of national pride and so, you know, I made sure to say, okay, we're going to end the concert by 8.15 or whatever, so you can go see the most of the game. Don't want to miss the game. So how did you get into um, into being a pianist and, and being interested in, in music um, as a child? So I, um, I think I showed a lot of interest in the piano. My dad was a very, is a very accomplished pianist. Um, he never did it professionally, but he took lessons from fifth grade through college. And I think I heard him playing for fun and asked for piano lessons. So when I was almost six, um, he sat down with me and gave me some lessons. And then I, um, although we have a great relationship otherwise, w did not work very well at the piano. So he sent me off to some other teachers. And, and there were definitely times as a kid, I mean, I did not like practicing. There are very few children who um, we'll sit down and practice productively for a long time. But I loved performing um, ever since I can remember. So my parents would have friends over and say, Annie, why don't you play something? <clears throat> and um, and there were times when I wanted to, to quit or take some time off, but I stuck with it. And by the time I was a teenager, um, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, one of the things that, that influenced me was seeing um, groups of young kids playing chamber music together, and they were just having so much fun. Um, and that's one of the things that I have in common with my co-founders of 240 Strings, um, Ben Noyes, cellist, and Tracy Yasas Hardell, violinist. Um, we all love chamber music, and that's what got us really excited about it as young people. So tell me, what is the definition of chamber music? So chamber music is a small ensemble, doesn't need a conductor, 
Um, ours is a piano trio, violin, cello, piano. A string quartet counts as chamber music, piano quintet, anything that's um, probably under seven or eight players. Um, a duo, I also count as chamber music. People disagree about that. Is violin piano chamber music or is it a pianist accompanying a violinist? But um, I would define it as anything between two and seven or eight players without a conductor. And what is it about chamber music specifically that, that you and the co-founders of 240 Strings um, love so much? Um, I think it's mostly the exchange of ideas. You can play something one way and somebody else can react to it or vice versa. Um, the training in classical music is so intense that as, a, as you're learning, you spend a lot of time in a room by yourself. Um, and um, chamber music allows you to get out of that and share some of what you've done. Yeah, that's an interesting idea that, that there, is, there is a certain amount of both that you need to actually be very dedicated to your own practice and your own practice time in order to be a good member of a group, but you also have to be able to be a good member of the group. Right. And it is um, not too common to find people that you can work with, um, you know, openly and and get inspiration from and, and stick with it for a long time. I'm always in awe of the great string quartets who um, stay together for 25 uh, 50 years sometimes. It's like a, another marriage. It's being married to three people. <laughs> yeah, which sometimes for some people being married to one person is, <laughs> is hard enough as it is. Right. So to have that ongoing exchange of ideas and music, uh, it, I would think it would be both extremely, sometimes very difficult, but also extremely rewarding. Yes, exactly. Um, you you know you work on your own part by yourself you you bring it together and you just see this piece grow um over the weeks or months that you're rehearsing it and your concept of the piece can change everybody else's can change and you just kind of it just morphs into um i was gonna say a final production but nothing is ever final you perform it once and then it changes some more and you perform it again i like what you said about enjoying the performance itself and knowing when you were very young that you like to perform because I, I don't think everybody has that love has that love of performance I, I I absolutely understand that and not everybody gets it right I have some adult students who um, will only play by themselves they don't want anybody to listen to them and that's fine too that feeds some other part of their spirit um, I don't know that I was aware of it as a kid that I loved it, but um, but it just kind of when I realized it, it had been there all along. I think, um, and more, you know, it's just a it's a neat thing to share with people. Um, people always like to hear music in any any stage, and I see it now with my daughter who's almost seven and taking violin, and we think, are people going to want to, you know? support these squeaky sounds coming out of this little violin, but they love watching people share their skill, I guess. I, yeah, and having sat through a number of uh, children's concerts all the way from young and squeaky to high school and college, there is also, there's there's a wanting 
for the people that are performing to do well. Right. For most of us, at least. I mean, I guess it depends if you're paying a $200 ticket for a squeaky violin. Maybe that doesn't work out. But, you know, there is a, there's a buy-in. There's an investment. And, and we really, we're, we're there. Right. We, we want the performer to, to um, I guess, create for us. Right. That's what I tell my students, that everybody out there is on your side. Nobody's coming to watch you get nervous or mess up or they all want you to do as well as you want to do. So is it the sharing for you, the sharing of music? Is it the, what is it about the performance itself that really appeals to you? I think it's a big part of it is the sharing um, and hearing people's reactions afterwards and knowing that, um, you know, I've made a difference for those people on that day. Um, It's also the process of getting to know that repertoire so well over the course of those months or that year or whatever. And um, this is the culmination, you know, this is my art exhibit. This is my, that you can't really, that's not tangible. You can record it, but um, it's the culmination of all those, of what's not only what the composer has indicated, but how I, how it makes sense in my own head and the work that I've done with it. Yeah, that's an interesting idea because when we see a score, a musical score, we think, well, there's certain notes and they're going to sound a certain way because it was written a certain way. But there is that that an interpretive aspect that maybe we don't we don't think about. Right. Yeah, you can hear the same piece played by ten different people, ten very different ways, um, which is great. You know, even for the composers who are very very specific, like Bartok. Um, was an early 20th century composer who wrote almost everything. This, these, this measure has to be this loud or this soft. This note has to be halfway between uh, short and long. Um, even for a composer like that, there are many, many different ways that each person makes sense of it. How has this uh, shifted, do you think, in the last... I don't know, say 40 years when recorded music, digital music has really become so much more readily available than it ever was. Yeah, it's um, it's changing so fast. <laughs> um, I, I know that, you know, decades ago, um, it was part of conservatory classes or you know even people would talk about it in lessons well why don't you go home and listen to um to establish you know compare the Arau recording of this Beethoven sonata with uh um Gilel's recording or something and there were it seemed there was less to keep track of I guess now there are you can call up anything any performer playing any piece of music from a four-year-old to a to a professional and um, it's just so readily available. Um, I, there are positives and negatives. I think um, for my, I'm just going through this for myself. Um, I recorded a solo CD a couple years ago um, with Bob Ludwig from Gateway Mastering Studios and um, he, uh, was very happy with it. We've been shopping it around to some labels and um, it's very difficult now to get any kind of agreement that works for everybody. Um, there were some labels interested, but they wanted me to pay them. And so it's just easier to go self-publishing route, I think. 
Um, and, but that's all, I think, part of the easy, you know, everything being more easily accessible online. And um, it's not good for record companies. It's not good for performers. Maybe not good for listeners. But, um, it's great that there's more available, but it's also kind of sensory overload sometimes. Yeah, that that's a good point. And, and I also think that there is something about doing... Uh, the practice and about the refining of whatever it is and it, and it, in this day and age it's like you can put your rough draft out there right and and say okay I, I did it and now it's done as opposed to the time that it takes you know the hours and hours that it takes to actually bring something to some place of semi-completion I would think right yeah and for me it's more about this is yeah this is at a stage of completion I'd like to show it I'd like to get it out there and um doesn't matter you know how much money it makes or or any of that other stuff why portland what is your connection to portland so i grew up in saco um, from age seven on um my dad was born in biddeford and my mom's from oregon so it was come back to one of those two places and so we came back to saco um and so almost everything musical for me happened in portland um as a kid and and then, you know, I tried to leave a couple times, but the quality of life here is so great that um, I just kept getting pulled back. Um, and I think my cellist, Ben Noyes, would say the same thing. He grew up in Portland, and we both, I don't think either of us imagined ourselves back here, but um, here we are, and we love it, and I don't think anybody has any plans to leave anytime soon. Um, I love the um, cultural diversity, I love the landscape. Um, uh, there's just so much to to enjoy around here. And what is it about the the teaching for you that is so important? You, you're you're doing this nonprofit. You're in the process of launching this nonprofit, 240 Strings, and this is to make available lessons for children. Mm-hmm. Why is that? It's so important to you. Um. I think, I mean, I've always loved teaching. That is another thing that took me a little bit by surprise. I um, thought that I wanted to be a performer and travel around the world and do only, you know, solo piano music. Um, But I came back to Maine for a semester to teach for Laura Cargill at University of Southern Maine and fell in love with teaching. And um, so I've been teaching all ages ever since. And... And this specific project, I think, um, it was about nine or ten years ago, I was teaching up at Bay Chamber Concerts in Rockport, and I met some people from the Providence String Quartet who started the pilot program. Uh, You know, now there are many programs like this around the country. Um, But they started Community Music Works with a $10,000 grant, 10 violin students, and now I'm going to... It's about 20 years later. Um, They've got, I think, a million-dollar budget, a MacArthur Award. They've got so many students, they needed to hire more musicians. And they've got a bunch of students testifying that, you know, this is the program that made the difference in their lives between being stuck in a ghetto and coming out and being able to attend an Ivy League school. Um, I think one of the classical music is so good for the brain, Um, there's more and more research that shows that musicians have brains that um, communicate really well between left and right side Um, 
and there are some little videos you can see online about how that works but um, so it's great for brand development and I thought you know why not Portland Portland has such a diverse population there's a high poverty rate um, this is you know there are families coming here trying to get settled in a new country can't afford any extra activities for their kids um, this is a great way to kind of give back to the community Growing up in Saco, did you have a sense of the greater world? I, when I look at your very extensive bio, you've you won first place at the International Young Music Artist Music Competition in Bulgaria. You hold prizes from the Cap de Pera International Piano Competition in Mallorca and the Indianapolis Matinee Musical Competition. And in 2004, the Greek Women's University Club of Chicago awarded you the Canellos Award. Did you have any sense that the world was this big and that you would be out there doing this type of work all over the place? Um, I, well, some of those things, like when I testified before Congress, I was about 15, I think. Um, and that was also because of my association with Bay Chamber. Um, they had gotten some funding from the NEA and wanted to show somebody who had that had made a difference in their life. So, um, so that was that kind of opened some doors for me, um, as well as um, playing at Lincoln Center um, in a piano trio when I was a teenager. Um, and I guess I also attended Bowdoin International Music Festival as a kid, so I saw, I guess I did, you know, I would go through my um, my academic year in Saco and just be practicing piano and doing my homework and the normal things that kids do, and then um, these other opportunities would open up in the summers, and I think summer is when I kind of got a glimpse of how the rest of the world works. And do you think that with your 240-string nonprofit, are you hoping that this this type of these types of doors will be open for the children that will be impacted? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I hope that they will be able to perform often for for people locally, and if we can set up some other exchange opportunities, that would be great. Um, I think it will. All of the experiences that we can bring to them will will broaden their horizons, for sure. 240 strings is the number of strings that um, collectively equals your instrument and the instruments of your two co-founders of this organization. That's right. Are a lot of people surprised to learn that pianos have strings? Probably. <laughs> I haven't heard any um, anybody express surprise, but um, we actually had to debate about the number because the number varies depending on whether it's a nine foot Steinway or a you know tiny Kawai or whatever. So you know, 248 strings we thought sounds better than 238 or <laughs> 242, um, but. Yeah, I don't know. So the basic way a piano works is um, there's a set of wooden hammers inside that come up and um, hit the strings, and in the middle of the piano, there's one string. Um, I'm sorry, there are two strings. In the high register, there's three, and in the bass, there are these really thick just sets of one string. So um, it's been called a string instrument. It's been called a percussion instrument. It's kind of in its own keyboard family.
Do you play other instruments as well? Um, I, as a kid, I played flute for a few years and cello, um, and I'm glad that I got that experience to see a little bit more how a wind instrument works and a string instrument, but I don't uh, call myself proficient at anything other than piano. We have the opportunity to hear some of your work. Tell me about the piece that we will be listening to. So um, the CD that I recorded um, includes a premiere of some work by um, Cecilia McDowell, who's a British composer. Um, She's composed a lot of choral works, and um, also on the CD is um, a lot of other new music, some Messian, some Radovara, who's a living Finnish composer, um, then some older stuff. But um, Cecilia um, has been great. It's always nice to be able to be in touch with a living composer. So we've emailed back and forth about her music. Um, and she wrote a set of pieces. Um, CD opens with a set of pieces based on experiences she's had. Like one is called Vespers in Venice. Um, and the CD closes with a piece called Color is the Keyboard, which I'm naming the album for. And that is the piece you're going to hear. Um, it is based on a Kandinsky painting. Um, and she's thinking of all the colors that you can get out of the the timbre of the instrument. If you're listening to this interview, make sure that you wait till the very end because that's where we're going to be playing uh, Anastasia Antonakis's piece that you can also, at some point in the future, you can also purchase. So make sure that you, you stay tuned. In the meantime, how can people find out about 240 strings or the music that you do? So we have a website that's um, 240strings.org. Um, we post any concerts that we have coming up. Um, <clears throat> we do have enough, uh, we've gotten enough donations so far to start three students in the fall. So um, that just recently happened. We'll have to work work very quickly to set that up. Um, but we're really excited about that. Um, and I'm meeting later with a woman who's been donating instruments to children all around the country. Um, so hopefully we can do some partnering with her. Um, I have my own personal website, which is just my full name, AnastasiaAntonakis.com. Um, and I try to list my upcoming concerts there too. Um, so, yeah. We have been speaking with Dr. Anastasia Antonakis, also known as Annie, who is a pianist on the faculty of the University of Southern Maine and a frequent recitalist, chamber player, and concerto soloist, and also um, the co-founder of a new nonprofit in the Portland area, 240 Strings, which will be educating uh, young students in music. And you're a busy lady, so I really appreciate your coming in and having, and my having the chance to talk with you today about all of this. Thank thanks, you. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Love Main Radio, show number 251, Practicing Perfection, Music and Dance. Our guests have included Elizabeth Drucker and Anastasia Antonakos. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. 
We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Practicing Perfection Music and Dance show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Alby. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belay. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's a recording of this week's guest, Annie Antonakos, playing The Color is the Keyboard.
Thank you for listening to Love, Maine Radio. We hope you can join us for next week's program.